One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome back to the Beer Ladies podcast. I am Lisa and I am your host this week. And I am joined by only one co-host today. I have Christina. Hello, Christina. Hello. And this week we have a special guest. We have Mo Deezy. Do you want to say hello? Hello. <laughs> and there's a hello from Yeah, we have a man on today, people. We are allowed uh, from time to time. Um, because we are going to be chatting about heritage grains today and heritage malting and what that means. But... Before we dive into that, we do want to, uh, you know, do our usual sort of shout out to everyone for continuing to like us and share us and subscribe. Thank you very much. We are at Beer Ladies Pod on most of the socials. We are on YouTube as well. Uh, and we do have a link tree now where you can find links to all of our various things, whether that's uh, all of our, um, you know, all of our different handles, uh, all of our previous episodes. You can buy merch, you can buy us a coffee, and we love it when you guys do that. So thank you so much. Uh, so before we dive in, we'll do a quick, what are you drinking or what do you have? So Christina, start with you. Um, so firstly, thank you so much to McHughes for sending this to me and to several, uh, all of us, actually, mm -hmm. all of the podcast hosts this season. They sent us a lovely package of their newest beer in the Explorer series. This is number five. Um, it was made with Larkins. Um, so this is the, yeah, the road trip explorer series. Um, so this one is supposed to have grapefruit, passion fruit, and guava. It sounds really amazing and I can't wait to try it. So very excited. So thank you so much for sending this to us. Wonderful. Thank you very much. And before I go on to mine, Mr. Deasy, what have you got there? Ooh, well, I have one of my own actually. Uh, this is a can of Ramo. There you go. You can see it. Anyway, this is one of my first single source beers, whatever. Oh, lovely. Uh, so, and it's a smoked sour, which is possibly unique. Uh, yeah. A little bit of rhubarb in there as well. So, yeah. oh, very, very unique indeed. Uh, yeah. So, we're, we definitely want to hear more about the whole sort of single source uh, path and what that looks like. Uh, but before we dive in, I, I couldn't find um, anything locally, at least in my immediate area, that was either specifically using heritage grains or a canvas beer. I know we need, we will get some more stock eventually, but uh, I don't have a lot locally yet. So I went for my uh, closest brewery. So I have a Hope Pass If You Can. So I figure that has the, the fewest air miles and everything else on it. And I know that they are doing some cool uh, green initiatives as well. So uh, always enjoy Hope's Pass If You Can. Always enjoy a good pale ale. 
And they um, brewed a beer with Emer, actually, I think. Type they did. Type Heritage Grain, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Last year they did that with the, uh, the their winter one was with with the Emer, and they uh, we, we did sort of say, ooh, it would be really cool to follow up with them to see, uh, uh, one, if they're going to do any more of that, but also, two, if they're going to sort of do more with the uh, archaeology project that they've uh, been doing a little bit there um, on as well, because we are very interested in both current heritage grains, and I know Christine and I are both interested in super deep heritage grains and what that yeah. might look like so yeah, yeah i actually i met the farmer actually recently and i oh, was lovely. like oh well if they want to mold some of it i could mold some of the grain and then they could use this mold in the beer oh that's hope great if you're listening <laughs> yeah yeah definitely yeah yeah richie then yeah tune in so great yeah, yeah. uh great idea wonderful so i think we'll probably need some definitions for people so i think for, for us who are sort of nerdy about this, we, we sort of toss a lot of these things around, but, uh, and we do have a malt 101 episode, but if we wanna just sort of set a baseline for everyone, what do we mean when we say malting? And what do we mean when we say heritage grains? And, and we'll probably kind of dive into what do we mean by the grains versus the malt? And there's a lot there to unpack for someone who might not be as technically inclined. So definitions. We got an error, right? We can do <laughs> Uh, okay, so very simply, uh, okay, grain, that's what you grow in the field, right? Malting is the process of converting. You wake up the grain by soaking it and you start it to germinate. And after five to seven days, you stop that process. And what you're doing is you're trying to create enzymes to convert the starch that's held in the grain into sugars. Um, and that's those enzymes are what we use in the mash tun to convert all of the starch into sugar because yeast feed all sugar, not all starch. And so that's that's the big difference between grain is all starch, mold, we got the enzymes, we got the starch into sugars, um, and that's that's what we need to make beer, basically. It's very important to um, And then when we talk about heritage, so pretty much everyone is growing modern varieties. Mm -hmm. um, which are quite short straw and um, which originate from Norman Borlaug after World War II and he invented these dwarf genes uh, sorry to invent them he found these dwarf genes in, right. in varieties uh, which combined with nitrogen fertilizers meant we could increase yields and that's the start of the green revolution so to me heritage grain is a very wide term um, sure. but I kind of draw one line, which is once you start going to shorter varieties, and um, that's kind of the start of intensification. And um, ancient grains is probably a different category. That's, yeah. So like heritage grains, you're probably talking 1940 and earlier 1910s, you know, into the 18th century, stuff like that. But they're heritage grains. Ancient grains, you're talking emer, einkorn, you're going back 10,000 years like that. Yeah. That's that's way photo photo like that's and <laughs> um, that's that's why they call them ancient grains. You know they're really not optimized at all. Um, but yeah, it's it's slightly an ambiguous term because sometimes you'll you can buy a heritage sourdough in a supermarket with right. twenty percent spelt, and that spelt they call it a heritage grain, right. but actually it's a modern variety of this heritage wheat. So it it's very it can be a adulterated an awful lot basically and um, yeah but, yeah absolutely and and I, I think people may have some more familiarity if, if they're into gardening or, or that kind of thing because there are so many varieties or we'll say again sort of big catch-all sort of heritage varieties of things like tomatoes or 
even um, I would say, especially apple trees, that's been a whole interesting thing, or even apple varieties, even less than trees, since they have all the grafting and it gets really confusing. But yeah. uh, I think- Yeah, and, and heritage heritage vegetables are great. Um, yeah. Specifically, if you're growing them in your back garden, you're not worried about yield. You want flavor right. and stuff like that. And it's like, um, my mom, we set up a polytunnel and first year she grew these tomatoes and it was like, they were, the variety was called Moneymaker. <laughs> and they tasted terribly right. and it was like why did I go to all this effort to make tomatoes that taste terrible and it's like you know go to a heritage variety you get less yield but more flavor and it's like that's why you grow a tomato is to make a really tasty tomato that you kind of go yeah I can't buy that in the shop it's great it's awesome and um, so in a way that ties into why we're growing heritage grains in the on the farm to mold to make to brew them into beer is because if we're going to all this hassle, we might as well use the best possible grain that we can get, you know? Mm. And and that's historically in the brewing world, people talk about pale ale. So your mm. pale ale molds and your lager molds, you know, generally those are base molds which take up say 80% of your grain though, right. typically. Um, but if you want to make a really good beer, most brewers are like, oh, get Maris Otter. It's got more flavor. It's a heritage variety. It's been floor malted. It's got more flavor. And um, so that kind of started me on, the, and it's more expensive, basically. Right. Well. Sure. Um, and that started me on the journey, basically, of like heritage grains. And I and like my dad can remember growing Maris Otter, basically. It's not that old, basically. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, cool, let's get some Maris Otter. Uh, and they were like, no, you can't get it in Ireland. You need to be within... East Anglia or wherever they grow it basically sure. and have a contract and blah 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 and like that to me that's the reason why I brew beer is to not be part of a mass market conglomerate basically because when we grow malting barley commercially we grow it for the largest malting company in the world who mm. sells it to the fourth largest brewery in the world you know whereas I'm like I'm trying to decommoditize and get away from that commodity treadmill basically you know because when we sell grain as farmers we sell it on the world market price that's right. what mm -hmm. what are we're paid based off what grain is traded in paris you know that's and that's all around the globe that's what grain all links into and so and it's basically the price of grain in 1950s is the same as it is right now mm, okay two years ago oh gosh now, now yeah. it was 150 pounds back in 1950 which three tons would buy you a car, you know, whereas yeah. I'm like three times 150 basically wouldn't buy you much of a car <laughs> in, <laughs> today, you know. Um, but so that's so that's kind of why when we're going to do the malting, I was like, ooh, heritage, can we get more flavor? And um, yes, we're going to sacrifice yield, but when I'm, I'm malting it myself and brewing it myself, I'll take the sacrifice if I can get higher yield. And um, and then there's also this stuff about disease resistance and stuff like that. Mm. And so one of the negatives in terms of grain, and I apologize, I'm going pretty heavy into No, this is great. We love it. One of the negatives in, for the farmer is that these are tall straw varieties. And mm. um, so basically some of them like go up to my shoulder. I they go oh, land wow. wheat and like I... I used to grow it as a spring bar variety and um, because there's very little reference to Galway land wheat anywhere on Google. Basically. And so if you find any references or anyone <laughs> comes up with any references, please let me know because I know nothing about this. But now that I, I know it's a winter variety, but basically I grew it by accident as a winter <laughs> variety. 
um, <laughs> because I'd grown it as a spring, some seeds had fallen on the ground, uh, okay. germinated, yeah. and I was harvesting the next year. And I was like, what's that standing like two foot above everything else? So I got out of the combine. It's like, here it was up at my shoulder, basically. I was like, wow. okay, it's, it's a winter variety and it's quite happy. But like literally, you know, the modern varieties at my waist, this winter one's at my shoulder. That's oh, the wow. difference in height. But the difference in height in the straw is also mirrored under the ground. So you got a much bigger oh. root system. Okay. So when we're not applying, if we're trying to reduce inputs and not use as much fertilizers, we need a big root system to go out into the soil and get the nutrients. And um, so that's, now you have that negative of less yield, but if you're using less inputs and you've got better plant health because the root system is connected with the, with the plant's health. Um, and basically all grain was organic before before we started figuring out what fertilizer was and stuff like that. And um, so yeah. that's my thought of now, basically I'm going back to seed banks or I have been for years going back to seed banks, getting these heritage varieties, growing them out and trying to see how they work in a modern um, in a modern field. And then basically I grow them all the way until, um, well, as long as they're not terrible and like really, <laughs> over or something like and I'm just like no I can't not keep that again but so I, I kind of grow them for a few years because you start with like 20 seeds right yeah because um, that's what you get from the seed bank and it's like the famous one is in Norway it's like deep oh, into yeah, a yeah. mountain and they've yeah. got seeds of every variety of everything like it's mad and um, but you can get you have to write a pretty convincing email basically and convince <laughs> them that you are the next grain breeder and going to do amazing things and um, and you can get these 20 seeds and grow them. So typically it takes me about five years between getting the 20 seeds. And my dad would look at them and he's like, hey, one of those is cracked. You're down to 19. I'm like, yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and if they germinate, we might be down to 17 or 16. Right. But that gives you 16 plants or 15 plants, which give you enough seeds and you grow them year on year. And then you have to figure out if they grow well in the modern world. And then because we mold, we brew on a very small scale and we mold right. on a very small scale, we can test these out and kind of see how do they work and what sort of flavors they, they generate basically. And, and then if that works, grow them again and grow them again. Yeah. Uh, and this is all about keeping seed as well. Um, yeah. Because basically this isn't owned by a large company, it's heritage, it's, it's my ancestors basically. It's, it's the previous people who own this variety. Uh, and that means that basically we keep the seed, we keep a portion of the seed, we clean it and we plant it from year to year. Uh, and what my little sort of trend towards is to try and get these grains because you're keeping the seed you're going to start adapting these seeds to north to prairie and how we farm. <laughs> so yeah. basically in 10 years time these will end up being slightly different to where they were previously uh, which is really cool and exciting and adapting for climate change all these really important things diseases yeah. are way more prevalent with much more problems with them as farmers so if we can adapt and use these kind of older heritage genetics that have these interesting flavors and yeah if you yeah, can't I, guess i love it oh <laughs> no I, we, we we said a little bit about this and it's been you know almost two years now on our, our malt 101 episode how you know people tend to really overlook how important malt is in in really imparting the flavor and a lot of it you know um and again, I think some of this is because at your huge commercial level, you know, you've already done so much to it to, to sort of, you know, kind of give the malt a flavor of its own before you even get to the brewing process, either, you know, because you've made it a certain kind of malt or, you know, different things like that. But I, I guess when you strip it back to just kind of this is what it is and before you start to tinker with it in other ways, how, how do you find that at that sort of almost micro level or how do you experiment uh, once you're in there kind of 
you know, molting uh, away. Yeah, well, like, yeah, as in, I, sorry, so the brewer has the largest effect on, on the flavor mm. of the beer, you know, and that's, and that's down to yeast and it's down to hops, like hops, if you dry hop something heavily, you're like, oh, that's yeah. what's going to drive the flavor, you mm. know, or if you use a Belgian yeast or something, that's going to drive the flavor. Sure. But if you kind of strip those down and kind of use more neutral or, or not aggressively flavored, then malt becomes this thing. And it's a large ingredient, basically. Yeah. And, and that's what they say kind of in the, the it's, it's coming across the American craft brewing scene. They're like, malt is the soul of beer, basically. And that's like, that's when they're like, you want to make a real special beer? They're like, use Marisana. Get that 80% base being something cool. And to me, it's like the difference between using 80%. So actually at the moment we use all base malt is our own heritage mm. malt, malted on the farm. So we still buy in specialist malt. Sure. That can be a small percentage. I don't have a roaster. Although yeah. I would love to get a coffee roaster and play around. <laughs> Shout out to any coffee roaster. If you want to take some of our mold and roast it, that would be awesome. Um, but it, yeah, so that's, so to me, that the mold is kind of the, the soul of the beer. And that's, if you can get 80% of that being like a really flavorsome mold, then that's something interesting. Rather than kind of spicing it with a few, like, you know, some, some Vienna or somebody's roasted molds, mm. Can you put 80% being something which has a bit more flavor and a bit more nuance, you know, and then you're building a beer kind of from the ground up, but also you have to think when we're, so I'm all about the soil as well, the root system, <laughs> yeah. that's where it starts, it starts with the soil, the root system, you go into the grains and the variety and get diversity into the field basically, so a lot of what I'm trying to push towards now is not just a single variety, these land races and what we used to grow was it wasn't just a single species, sorry, single species, but it wasn't just a single variety. There was lots of variety within mm. that and variation, basically. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to actually re-emulate is get multiple heritage varieties and mix them together. Uh, so now I actually have, what I was just looking before this podcast was I was checking on, I've planted a population rye, population wheat, and another landrace wheat, a Galway land wheat. And um, so that's the first time that I'll be like, might nearly have a ton of some of these so this will be like large quantities for me basically some breweries probably use that in half a brew but anyway uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, but that's so a population now is not just a single variety this is multiple varieties in the same field and they all have their strengths and weaknesses so like our weather is getting more and more variable we've got droughts we've got wet periods we've got all of this so if you've got multiple varieties some might survive well in a drought some might survive well in a wet period. So at least you get this resilience that you get a consistent yield each year. It's not, it's not a sprinter. Like it's not sure. going to be the best yield, but if you have a consistent yield, and if I'm basing our brewery around malting our own grain, I want to be able to malt that every year. I don't want to be like, yeah, 2025, yeah, sorry work, lads, yeah. and just shut mm-hmm. down for a year, have no grain. You know, that wouldn't be cool. So it's kind of like building that resilience in terms of climate by having that genetic diversity in the field. But now bring that through to the malting, complete different set of skills for malting. Like sure. you give that to a commercial big right. malt house, they'll be like, what are you trying <laughs> to get me to do? Are you serious? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> uh, how long do you germinate for it? Like, don't know. Like it's there's a mixture. So like, right. you, know, you know, judge it yourself mm-hmm. there. Uh, so that's, there's a bit of craft in that craft malting basically as well. But then put that into the brewery. So now we can tweak how we mash and, and what, all that's going on. And particularly when we're doing mixed fermentation, 
uh, and barrel aging. A lot of our beers now have barrels because if I have a choice between stainless and barrels, I'm like barrels every time. <laughs> Takes way longer. Don't have the same control, but you got right. awesome things that happen in a barrel. But in a barrel as well, you got mixed fermentations. You got yeast, you got bacteria, you got bread, you got all sorts of things going on. So my thought is by having lots of populations and variety in the field, put that into the brewery, feed that lot, feed that to multiple yeast strains and bacterial strains. Now you can get lots of nuance and lots of flavor being developed. And um, so that's in a way I'm like, yeah, if you feed these beers to like a single Saccharomyces, real clean, a smash, you know, single hop, single yeah. thing. Yeah, it, it'd be interesting to compare it to Maris Otter and to something else. But really, I think it's it's when you put into a barrel into mixed fermentation, that's where you kind of get that step on, basically. And yeah, that that's... to me is like that's that's my my dream, basically, is making those sorts of beers. That's yeah, that's making the the really interesting vertical tastings where you're gonna get yeah a huge variation uh from you know year on year with, with the same base initially. But yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. and like it's it's gonna be terrible as a side-by-side -side comparison in terms of scientific, <laughs> like <laughs> and I accept that. It's just like, yeah, like it's just it's just different, you know. Yeah, um, what I, yeah, I did do a smash once with a biodynamic beer. Um, and I have a fully biodynamic beer in a barrel actually as well. Um, but so again, I, fully, don't, I don't. Oh yeah, just like fully biodynamic, like there's some bones buried in the field too, and the whole thing. Or, yeah, yeah, that, that's, yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> I, I'm not the biodynamic farmer, right. farmer uh, who gave me the mold. And he was like, "Could you make beer?" Or like, "Yeah, do you want to mold this and make beer?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, I'm, I'm good with that. Let's let's yeah. play with that." And um, uh, so yeah, and then we have our own. So we grow our own hops as well. Um, and then I spontaneously fermented that as well. Because in biodynamic, you can't be like, it, it's sort of an ethos as well. And there's a philosophy yeah. behind it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you can't really be taking a packet of yeast and just like, right. you know, that's <laughs> that's not that cool. So I was like, right, okay, full biodynamic, let's go spontaneous and chuck it in a barrel and let's see where it goes. So oh let's check gosh. up and see how it's getting on, actually. That's my, yeah, my to-do list to do. Absolutely. Christina, kind of in some ways similar to what we were talking about the other week, some of your um, medieval-ish brewing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, actually, I was going to ask you, like, what is the sort of inspiration for your beer recipes? Do you take um, the beer recipes from historical his heritage recipes as well? Or do you sort of think about the flavors of the malt and kind of go from there? Do you build it around the malt or the hops or how do you how do you come up with your your recipes? Uh, well, we do lots of beers. So there's lots of different ways to come up with recipes. Uh, some are, I did a McGee Marshall Stout. That was a historian over in the UK. Um, and he he basically via Twitter was like, hey, I've got some cool recipes you're doing. That was Brat Archer and Irish Gold Tour. And he was like, oh, I've got recipes based with these grains. Do you want to brew a beer with oh, them? Wow. I was like, Very yeah, cool. I do. You know, because and that was different <laughs> mashing techniques. So that was oh, kind okay. of fun to do very it was a step mash and it was like oh that's yeah i'll do that do you know because in a mold like that if you've got if you're not that super consistent all the same grain it's like ooh, you might have slight different starches and stuff so a longer step mash i was like yeah that makes sense to me that mm. you know back in the day picture back to what farming was when this was made at the turn of the century is like yeah okay let's let's use a historic mashing technique because even like in the in the brewing, like when we were home brewing, it was like um, 
I do love a Belgian quadruple, basically. Um, and it was like, oh, let's do a de decoction match. And most people now are like, well, malt is so perfect. You don't need to do a de decoction mm. match. You know, you can you can make it up in a different way, basically. And it's like, yeah, but what if you've got a heritage malt that has all these different starches that right. isn't completely perfectly modified? Sorry, modification is how much enzyme and how much mm. conversion of that starch is there. And um, then I'm like, ooh, historical technique might be useful using historical mold. Do you right. know what I mean? Because you yeah. have what used to be grown back there. So yeah, I am very interested with historical recipes um, and that's, yeah, and using that inspiration, like as in, when as I read Jean Leclerc's book and, and he would be, the, he's the first textbook in brewing basically. And um, because it's real old world like stuff and it's like, but we're brewing old world like you know, wood-fired boil kettle like as in it's it's all pretty rudimentary that it's like that's not that different to like way back in history basically so in a way that's where I, I take I do take a lot of inspiration from those techniques and stuff and then add a little bit of modern oh yeah I'm not turning my back on all science basically but like <laughs> using some of that older stuff uh, like there's a cool story uh, we were it's at a local historical society meeting and close to us is Lara and there's an abbey of Lara and he did a dig and he found these malt kilns uh, and oh. like that I was like fascinated I was like oh that's really cool like from the 10th century 12th century like way mm -hmm. back basically and um, and he showed the diagrams of how it was and how you know they had a fire and a little thing to keep away the sparks and it was on a, a hazel sort of basket and that's where you laid the Ooh. malt out and all of this and it's like that's kind of like yeah that's kind of how I've, uh, I use my malt kill it's like I've got a fan now and I've got a heated changer but like otherwise oh actually but remote this is the smoked malt this oh, was yeah. smoked this is one of my first batches of malt and basically I got a leak from the chimney and I got some of the smoke coming in <laughs> and basically I was like ah oh, this is like smoked malt I was like ah boo and then I was like oh wait a second why don't I just make a beer mm -hmm. like it's a smoked beer what the heck you know I might as well do something with it um, and that was kind of on the, do you know Francis Malman actually? He's a chef um, and he cooks with fire. He's on like chef's mm. table or something. Uh, and he does like mad stuff. He's very like, very entertaining. It's like five-star hotel has a big fire and like in the middle of their lawn wrecks the place. They have to probably <laughs> lay new grass and like cover it over. But he was like, he trained as a Michelin star chef in Paris and he went back to Argentina and he was trying to emulate the same stuff in Argentina. And then he was like, why why am I trying to do Parisian food in Argentina I should cook with fire I should cook with what's around mm. so very much the inspiration is to try and use like what's around and what's Irish or what's that history and that's trying to use like sweet gale and these ancient brewing herbs yeah. and use what's so like I, I brew IBAs yeah and we buy in hops for that but I'm more interested in trying to can we create something that's more of this area and of this historical background do you know because then it's it's suited like the hops we grow are not juicy mango all of this yeah, sort of yeah, stuff yeah. like you mm -hmm. know and it's time consuming to harvest them like i'm not putting a sh shed load into a beer it's if it, i don't make ipas with my own hops like basically do you know because it, it's so much work it's like you have oh, an yeah. ipa i'll buy some someone else has picked them and harvest them and let's get the mango and all of this mm -hmm. into it and um, but it's Oh, and actually I do a beer with uh, pine tips. 
because uh, actually it's a little play on a pale ale basically you know because if you have the hops with your resinous and piney and all these flavor and i'm like hey, here's actual pine lads yeah we <laughs> were actually that. talking about that over the weekend fun funnily enough because they the uh all around the philadelphia area that was a historical approach because they, that was what they had around so your 17th 18th century recipes all have spruce tips and other <laughs> things like that and uh Although I will say I, I've tried a couple of them and some of them can be a bit much. Uh, but again, I think some of that is modern yields, like you were talking about before, just very different from what you might have had historically. Um, and maybe the amounts they put in gave you a very different character in a beer that might have had maybe a smokier character already from the malt. Just again, thinking of those historical techniques. Yeah. They were yeah. probably smokier for whether they wanted that or not. So, mm. you know. Um. And yeah, and that's like that's the scary bit is like when I first brewed with um, Sweet Gale is is her basically, and um, I was like I have no context as to how much is too much or how much right. you know because if you have a hops it's like oh pale ale this is how many grams of hops sure. you know and even with our own hops it's like you know where's the alpha acid is this six point six or is this like and okay some of them we have the variety so we can have a guess as to why they are but there's some there's some hops that were growing in the farm basically all the time. Uh, which are wild land race, whatever you mm, want to call them, yeah. uh, heritage if you want, really. Um, but I don't know what variety they are. I don't know what alpha acid they are. So it's like, how do you brew with them? You're like, yeah, okay, that yeah. smells <laughs> strong. Mm. You know, it's, that's good hop. Yeah, we'll we'll go with 100 grams. Let's see how that goes, you know. So that's like one of our first spontaneous, we put a bit too much hops in it because we're using our own hops. And I was like, you know, trying to hit 10 IBUs or less and like, yeah probably was 15 or 20 I was like right, okay <laughs> cut that right down let's see where we go the next time and that's but it's it like what I say about our brewing is like it's the art of brewing like it's not the measurement heavy like here's everything you know because it's like right here's the grain here's the mold you taste it you're using your senses as to what it is and what it's tasting and then trying to pitch it forward through the process how it let, that'll turn out in the beer and um, so that's yeah there's a lot of imagination and I suppose that's why we're canvas brewery the artist and painting like it's oh, you know I, I, I can talk for hours and never mention the name of our brewery basically <laughs> like what's the name of your brewery you're like oh you're standing in it yeah canvas that's, that's who we are yeah. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting too just thinking kind of a little bit what you were saying before how you know you're thinking about sort of a historical ish what we'll say approach because I, I presume like you know kind of like farming in the past you'd have had bits and you know bits and pieces of time where there's a lot of downtime you're you're waiting for things to happen and i guess like when when you're just starting your your brew kettle or you know just starting like the fire that you're, you're kind mad of max. waiting so i went yeah mad max i'd love to hear a little bit more about mad max and what what do you find in terms of you know how much again i don't know if waiting or, or sort of downtime is the right word but it's definitely like a more labor intensive let's say than sort of flipping oh, yeah. a few switches yeah. in like a modern brewery yeah. so okay so mad max are wood fire boil kettle and it's because it's a bit dystopian like as in i well did it myself <laughs> and i was like kind of had this crazy idea and it kind of came out of like we're, we're down north of where i ground the farm i was like well do we we're not in an industrial state so we don't have tree phase electricity it's like do we get oil do we get gas and i work with stoves and basically i was like hey guys why don't we like go wood fire and they're like yeah yeah sounds good idea and i was like well no, it's it's probably not a good idea, but like <laughs> I think it could work, and like it would save yeah. us spending a load on electricity or like oil and gas because it's like sustainability is big in what we're doing, right? So yeah. we 
So we, by having a wood-fired kettle, and we, it's all wood from our own woodlands and ditches. So it's like we can harvest and manage the woodlands. And that's, we try and use coppers with standards, basically, because it's a more sustainable method, basically. Mm. Clearfella, Scots, or Clearfell, Sicker Spruce is not a positive thing. So when everyone right. talks about afforestation, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's really positive. Getting a non-native species and planting it in a really terrible technique is terrible for the soil. Not, yeah. Like, no, no, no. Anyway, so we use coppice with standards uh, and again genetic diversity it allows native trees all the native varieties will coppice so coppicing is where you cut the tree right but it regrows from the roots and mm. puts out shoots the next year and um, so you don't kill the tree the root system's still there you don't get erosion you don't get any of that so you can go in harvest a little area and you still get the trees growing and by having the older trees they will start to produce seed. So that's genetic reproduction. Ah, so we can okay. get adaptation out of our woodlands. So again, our woodlands will be different to other woodlands that are commercially planted using the same genetic material. Common right. tread, uh, <laughs> genetic diversity, interest, all these other different things. Yeah. And so that's sustainability. So that's sourcing our own energy. And then we have an Archimedes screw and solar panels get our own electricity and, and our own water. I don't know what the question was. Where was I going with this? Uh, just thinking about, you know, Mad Max and, and how just the amount of time you, you I, really spend both just in starting things up, you know, starting a literal fire and versus, you know, a, sort of a more, let's say, modern in air quotes setup because yeah. modern is not necessarily good. It all depends. Yeah, yeah. But so like, uh, there's well, a lot we more start the process by harvesting the wood. So like yeah. that's a long time and then get it to dry and then. Uh, but no, even on a brew day, right? So we heat all our water in Mad Max. So rather than just turning on the HLT and on a timer and yeah. be like, cool, we start the day with that hot water to start with. I'm like, light divine Mad Max, heat of water. So that does give me an hour and a half to two hours where I'm waiting to get on to the next stage. So that's actually where a lot of my creative time starts because it's like, cool, this is what I'm brewing. Yeah, great. And then I'm sitting there and kind of, or, well, generally I'm doing lots of other stuff. But then I'm like, I wonder, I wonder if I did this and then that. Well, how would that affect mm -hmm. the beer? And then basically two hours later, I'm like, there's a slightly different beer being created, but that's the, <laughs> so like, so yeah, very much each beer has its own idea and its own identity as to, I'm generally trying to achieve something or exploring some idea or some, like how would this mold interact with this or do something of interest. And, and then basically, particularly once you put it into a barrel or add like, so now we don't really buy in any yeast. I try and get some farmhouse, Ooh, actually, so one of my next beers is, with a Lithuanian farmhouse yeast. Ooh. So again, and Kavaiks at class, basically, that's another whole thing on yeast, basically. We're trying to talk about more so. But I'm like, I'm trying to not buy in yeast because if we're growing our own grain, we're getting our own hops, our own water and herbs, it's like, you don't be just putting in USO5 standard ale yeast in there, basically. It's like, well, what else is out there? And what's in this farmhouse culture of handing it down? Because like Kavaiks is a cool, fascinating culture. And yeah. it's like, it survived in really remote areas and it is a window into the past and what used to happen and um, but this is all stuff that's handed down you know from generation to mm -hmm. generation and then if it goes wrong you go to your cousin or you go to somewhere else yeah. and you get the yeast back and that's it survives and goes down that trend so i'm like in a way that's a little snippet into what used to happen in ireland it's just industrialization has wiped out a lot of this here and that's whereas those hot plants mm -hmm. that were growing in our farm to me, that is a sign, and that is in archaeology terms. It's, uh, you can use plants as a form of archaeology, what's growing in the area as a sign of what was going on in the past. Absolutely. It's like that hop, yeah. like it's a pretty plant, but like I couldn't tell it from a briar. It was just growing there. 
And it's like, to me, that is a sign there was some brewing going on. But pre-industrialization, pre-brewing going into the cities and into industrial areas, brewing was going on in the house. So there probably was a farmhouse culture of brewing going on. So it's like, how do I connect into that? And it's like, if you look into extreme places, you can see it in Norway, you can read about it. And like, I was in West Africa and like they were brewing. And I was like, this is, this is not, like, this is just brewing in a household level, like, and it completes subsistence. But like, oh, and what's very funny is like, and it's sour beer. It's like, I was like, this is, in Benin, it's like, this is the cheap, yeah. you know, this is the local boissons, like just drinking French. And it's like, I was like, yeah, but like this is sour beer in America is like the most expensive stuff. And you're yeah. like, you know, they're looking for this culture. Yeah. Like, oh, I got a weird strain of bacteria that can create an awesome sour beer. And it's like, you know, to me, that's the really mad thing. Like in one sense, yeah. it's subsistence, but in another sense, it's now become trendy and kind of cool because you got variations. And actually lactobacillus does cool stuff onto like you can ferment food, you can do it into beer. It does cool stuff basically. And yeah, absolutely. And it's funny because we've touched on that on a couple other uh, recent and not so recent podcasts. Like uh, we, we just had Ulrika from Schneeoil on talking about, you know, the Brett in, well, how, how the Brett and the lacto kind of went together and still go together in her Berliner Weisses and how that's different from what you see in a lot of the commercial Berliner Weisses, which I'm air quoting yeah. now. Yeah. But when we had uh, Jesse from, from Quesa on in Rwanda, again, the, the sour beer that they that they make there, a lot of that is it's it's sour but it's fresh you know it's 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 meant to be like that you're meant to consume it right away and that's so different from some of the other sort of again like you say kind of the trendier sour beers a lot of those are you know fermenting away for a while and then they they get sort of you know packaged and shipped out and it's just it's it's funny how you're arriving at kind of a similar result but with very different kind of audiences very different techniques and uh yeah different price points so yeah yeah <laughs> different uh, yeah and some of that stuff like beer was meant to be drunk fresh uh, and that's yes. one of the things I think is quite different to now and actually when we're talking about historical beer is like they brewed it and drank with it quickly whereas you know if you're trying to do historical beer and then you barrel age it for 12 months it's like mm. yeah they didn't do that so like that's now I do love aging beers though like I, yeah. I think it does help the quality and like Oh, barrels are amazing things, basically. But yeah, how that's one of the big questions on like how do you do historical beer and drink it fresh compared to, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And I know, and like Christina, you know, I've talked about this too. That you know, there's probably this this little portion that you set aside to age for special occasions or for you know X or Y. But the majority of it is, like you say, you know, sort of uh, farmhouse level subsistence or or maybe not even necessarily farmhouse, but it could be, you know, townhouse level where you're, you're brewing for yourself, maybe some of your neighbors and it's, it's very different. Um, it's a different vibe, man. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause definitely some of the braggots I've seen, they would age for not like an anywhere near like a year or anything like right. that, but longer than, but a lot, most of the beer in Ireland from the history that I can see is, is really fresh. Um, and there's the, the same thing in the UK. Um, but yeah, there's always exceptions. There's always exceptions. There's but always yeah, exceptions. I suppose yeah. the honey, the honey, like honey, is of huge value as well historically. So like, if you're yeah. adding honey to a beer, it is kind of special as well. So giving it a bit of time to, I do want to play with more honey in the brewery as well. Actually, that's something too. Yeah, yeah, and actually, that that's a question I had too. Is you know, like you say, you, you you've got your own, you know, you've, you've got your own malt, you've got your own hops. Obviously, your your own water, and trying to sort of cultivate over time your own yeast. It was sort of, are there other ingredients you'd love to have 
locally produce. And again, honey is one of those that's so hard to do at scale unless you are full time kind of you know, looking after the bees. But uh, yeah, and, and that's there's a whole skill in honeybees and, yeah. and how you manage and like all of that, um, which is something I'd like to do at some stage. But uh, that's another little rabbit hole to uh, get yeah. down. Um, but like that's actually one of the things we do sorry, in terms of fields and grains and malt. We do a lot of cover crops now. So mm, basically okay. between, so malting barley is normally sown, is spring malting barley. So you sow it in the springtime, you harvest it in the August. Um, so there is a time between then and the next spring where historically the ground would just lay fallow doing nothing. Mm. And whereas basically now we're, what we're doing is towards conservation agriculture, more crop rotation and more cover crops so that the soil is always covered. And so right now we've got like 12 species of, of different plants basically as diverse as possible out there and they're all most of them all flower so basically now we've got mustard and radishes and like Ooh, clovers yeah. linseed and it's full of pollinators like it's a beautiful sight like and that's it's one of the things you're like ah I'm doing good for the environment I'm doing good for the soil and I'm doing good for pollinators and it's like it's one of those really like like because agriculture gets bashed so much right now yeah. basically for like emissions and all this other stuff and it's like there are these techniques that we can do which can change what we do. And it's like now for six months, those fields are giving back to nature. We're feeding sure. the soil, we're feeding diversity and we're feeding pollinators and all sorts of other things. Um, and to me, that's like, it's it's about trying to get a really good, healthy soil to then have a really nice crop. Um, and even in terms of some of the beers, like we might end up with higher protein levels in some of our heritage grains if we have a really fertile soil. And it's like one of the challenges. But at the same time, if we go to do a metal goose or something like that, some of those beers, you end up putting in 40% wheat to try and get some some proteins in there and get these long aging things. So I'm like, hmm, well, some of these historical beers, I might get the protein from different sources in that context, basically. Um, but that's that's what's interesting about being a farmer, a molster, and a brewer. Because yeah. it's like, if I was just a farmer, I'd be like, ah, that's too much protein, they don't want it. It's like, yeah, they don't want it for larder. But what if you're doing right. something that you use lots of protein in? Or if you're brewing a beer that you want to do it really fresh, New England IPA, and it's like you want to put loads of wheat in there, loads mm -hmm. of things, it's not meant for aging. Then do you worry about the protein? Is it, uh, do you know, so like that's like in a way we're like a lot of the time I break a lot of rules basically. <laughs> and, and even in terms of beer styles, I'm like, I made a beer and it's like, yeah, it's it's amber. That's it's we're gonna call it an yeah. amber ale or something. Do you know what I mean? But it's like, is that to the to the to the specific guidelines? I'm like, yeah, but like it's I think so. Like whatever. That's you know, yeah. because like if I if I roasted the grains in a frying pan, I don't know what color like coat it is exactly <laughs> or what like do you know, like so it's it's a very different uh but it, it's just interesting. And even we're at a with a grain social there. Because I'm all about trying to promote local grains and local, get all of this stuff going. Because like and sort of it's agroecology basically. And and it's like it's a different approach, basically, of like looking after the soil, looking after what you grow, but you also have to look after where that food goes to kind of be sure. consumed locally. Mm -hmm. And so like, and the same thing in our wheat, like we can grow bread wheat in Ireland. It just may not fit within the large industrialized system, but mm -hmm. it would work lovely with sourdough, you know, and yeah. stone ground, lots of flavor, use fresh, you can get great bread, you know, and you need a skilled baker because even if it's got a certain protein level, 
it may just behave differently because it's a heritage mug and that protein is a simplified sort of measurement. Like there's much more going on than basically just protein, you know? And so that's like, that's one of the things. And it's like, but historically we used to like grow grain. We, when there was a more agrarian society, we used to consume our grain much fresher basically. And mm, um, yeah. so that's, yeah, I like grains. <laughs> oh, no, same. We, well, we, we're always very interested in all of this. And, and, and again, even, even when you're just looking at the level of like, you know, how much is barley versus wheat or oats or, or again, maybe like an ancient grain, you know, potentially like to, to what extent do you feel other, uh, other people are kind of embracing this approach and either growing their own or trying to get back to this kind of more sustainable model. Like we know there are a couple of other breweries who at least in Ireland who are trying to do more of it, but there's still only a handful mm -hmm. of you guys. Yeah. So how do you, how do you see the, the trend? Well, cause they're not all about you crazy. That's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, cause it is so difficult to do it this way. Like I said, that's it's one of the guys is like, you're yeah. basically doing the hardest way possible. It's like, yeah, yeah you're doing yes, all the are. things instead of <laughs> yeah, yeah. some instead of the just things. One thing. Yeah. And, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot more people doing it and trying it, and that's great. Do you know, like hope making a beer with some someone growing local grain, that's that's wonderful. Yeah. And the more interaction between farmers and processors and customers, that's better. It gets that connection back going. And and yeah, like because even in whiskey, as in water distillery, they're now looking yeah. at terroir and the flavor of different farms and different varieties, and they've done papers on it to kind of show yeah. the different flavor effect. And it's like absolutely it it happens you've got different climates we know on the farm right. that like there's certain fields close to the shannon and i don't know what it is with soil they will always ripen first it doesn't matter if you sow mm. them two weeks later they will ripen first it's just aspect water something it just they're yeah. different you know and it's like it is one of the things people said to us initially is like well how can you have consistency if you're so small it's like one do i want to be consistent mm. right uh you know is an artist consistent maybe in style not in like <laughs> not trying to produce the same painting every time basically and um, but it's like the but that individual field can be consistent as long as it's all the same mm. soil type and harvested in the same day now you've got consistency in that exact thing and it's like the big boys do it by blending grain from Donegal, right. Cork, and all the different varieties blend it all together and do massive batches and they get consistency like you can never be consistent. Like, one, I don't want to be consistent, but actually if I want to be, I can be within that batch. And it's right. like, oh, what about 2023 to be different? It's like, yeah, so what? I'm going to put the year on. It's like, this is the year of the malt because we do it in wine. It's like each, you mm -hmm. buy the same wine. It's like 2015, 16. It's each wine is slightly different. They try yeah. and make the same grain or the same wine, but it will evolve based on the weather mm -hmm. and the inputs and all these other things. So so be it, why hide it, you know? Whereas brewers are always changing their recipes to try and keep the same consistent. And I'm like, no, I want to celebrate the connection between customers and fields, you know? Yeah. I want the customers to say, yeah, yeah, this is this year's version of that beer. It's a, it's a different beer. Similar characteristics, similar barrels, similar culture, but it will evolve and change as our taste buds change. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? So that's, and to me, that's much more interesting sort of, story journey experience you know so why let's let's bring let's not make everything bland let's bring some variety and interest into the life you know so the more breweries connect with farmers and say cool can we get to buy a field off you and use that field for, like 
that's great. We should all be trying to do that and encouraged to do that because we have a great environment for malting barley. Like that's bread wheat is more challenging, but like malting barley every day, it's good. <laughs> like we, we can do that, you know. And, and something else that I was going to say, but I forgot the name. Anyway, yeah, I know. I, I just be curious kind of what it would be like because I, I feel like it's sort of uh you know canvas so you guys obviously uh Ballock Hill Cabin 12 acres like have you guys mm -hmm. ever thought about coming together for a sort of you know Frankenstein's monster of a of a sort of own grown beard or what, what would that be like yeah I'll, I'll bring the my, I'll bring the crazy yeast and the and yeah, like, and, and that's, like, each, each of those, even if we grow the same varieties, yeah. there'd be slight differences between sure. them. Now, mm -hmm. again, okay, if you, if we brewed it in three, in three different brew houses, the brew houses will have these effects, Do you know, and, yeah. like, there's all of these yeah. effects that, like, the brewer does have, the hand of the brewer is in everything, like, I, yeah. even though we brew a crazy amount of different styles, there's certain choices that I make that all, like, I try and make out my beers drier, because I'm just, like, that, that's sort of where I, I I'm at. I'm like I don't, I don't want lots of residual sugar, you know. Yeah. And um, and that's uh, which actually ties me into saison. That was what I was going to say <laughs> actually, uh, perfect, because because yeah. we do brew with diastatic yeast basically, which is mm. a scary experience basically. Um, <laughs> but it we're also a saison brewery, and in terms of time and stuff, because. When we're farming, like that's, I was in the field and I was like, oh crap, I'm never on a podcast. So I'm rush back, basically. <laughs> uh, but it's there's times of the years where we just don't brew, basically, uh, yeah. because it's all hands on deck. It's harvest, we got to do it, you know. And today, two dry days, we'll be sowing our winter oats tomorrow. You know, that's, mm -hmm. there's a process and we don't yeah. brew in those times. We come into winter time, come before Christmas. Yeah, we, the, it's time to hibernate. And then it's like, okay, yeah. into the brewery, let's go create beers and do kind of, all these different things. And then that's when you do the malting during winter, right. come into springtime, you know, and you have this evolution of different times. And that's, so even though we don't always brew Saison, we're actually, a, we're a farmhouse brewery. We're producing farmhouse beer, but we're actually a Saison brewery because we're brewing seasonally. And try yeah. and use the time, like use elderflower, use whatever ingredients are around basically at the time. So that the this when you're using the pine tips you know you want to brew that in springtime because that's when you got the fresh tips that's how you get the best flavors out of them yeah. you know and, and try not to overdo it basically and <laughs> um, but you know if you do that out of season you're going to get harsher flavors and yeah. be too earthy and not the right mm -hmm. balance basically and um, but that's based off me looking at the pine tips and be like mm, that's good yeah it's time to go let's let's brew that so that's kind of my goal is to get these kind of cycle of beers that will evolve based off what's around and basically it'll be out of season and connect people back to seasonality as well that like things change that's just the way it is you know things are in season things are out of season and let's look forward to when it's coming back in season again because that means it's springtime or it's summertime again you know yeah absolutely i was, I was listening okay. to a podcast with with martin cornell the other day where he was saying, you know, it's it's nice to, you know, have that that familiar thing you get from your local brewery, knowing that it changes over over time and to know that, oh, you know, maybe this is when it's it has these characteristics. Maybe this is the time of year it has those characteristics, but they're not going to be the same. It's still the same product, but it's going to evolve. And you could you, like, people used to be OK with that. And then they sort of got into all this commercial stuff and it was less OK with that. But I think it's such an interesting idea to sort of see the seasonality of it. So it's it's very much 
kind of like you're saying, there's sort of the art and the science, but then there's also just that that experience of knowing um, what's happening out there in nature. And that's, I feel like so many people are kind of divorced from that just because you don't see it day to day if you live in the city or, you know, that kind of thing. So how do you kind of bring that to the to the fore for people to try to help them understand what's going on there? Well, you see, I wreck people's heads, really, because it's <laughs> always changing. And, <laughs> you know, they're like, oh, I have that one. Can I have that one again? I'm just like, no. Like, nope. <laughs> no. Um, and like, yeah, I, I do get the familiar as 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 we brew. The longer I'm brewing, we'll probably have some familiar beers more, basically, um, to kind of have that element of familiarity more. Because yeah. like when we're brewing a real wide range, it's like, you know, I'm like, do you like a sour beer? Because like, that's a sour beer. That's very different to this, this other beer. You know what I mean? Yeah. You, like, and you can, you could alienate people quite easily, basically, <laughs> if you yeah. a sour beer and they yeah. don't know what they're about to drink, basically. Yeah. Um, now, at the same time, what I'm trying to do is, what I try, kind of a, a term I use is conscious consumption, that mm. you need to read the label, as in when, when you know exactly what it is, you can like open that beer and drink it and you don't need to think about it. And that, that has a time and place, like don't get me wrong, do you know? Yeah. But there's also a time when you need, well, maybe it's my kind of personal thing to be like, okay, what do I want? You know, people are like, what's my favorite yeah. beer? And I'm like, I don't have a thing. Yeah, it depends beer. on yeah. so many things. Context, yeah. time, mood, the like weather. all these things. Yeah. yeah. Do you know what I mean? As to like what suits you right now. And okay, that makes it difficult. And kind of people is going to be like, oh, I'll bring some beer over from us. It's like, yeah, okay, I can see how I might be a bit <laughs> difficult to be. <laughs> bring me a lambic beer. Always going to love that one, basically. But it, um, yeah, it, it's by by making people think about their surroundings, where things are coming from. Do you know, if more breweries started connecting with their farmers or like being like, I want to brew with grain from here or like, can you grow this grain for me? And can can you grow a cover crop before to make nice soil mm. health? And can you do all these positive things? And the farmer, he's like, yeah, you, this isn't going to mass market. I'll sell that to you. We can agree a price and have a consistent. And who cares about the price of grain in Paris or something you know right. I'm growing it and I'm selling it to you and you sell it to people yeah let's have a nice solid green and then it takes the risk out of it you've got a connection you got community you got all those wonderful things that like that I'd love to see more of that basically around mm -hmm. the place and um, and the more people will then be like do you know what there is terroir and grain like there's absolutely I mm -hmm. actually use the Irish word counter because yeah. counter it's your surroundings and because all of that stuff influences what makes our grain taste basically and what our beer tastes now in my sense it, it there's also kind of probably a philosophical because i'm trying to use the herbs and the ethos and all those other bits but at the same time terroir is just a french word because they've been talking about it for ages you know and we accept it in wine so we need to talk about counter in our grain that it's about our surroundings like where this grain comes from and connect back into it and yeah absolutely and and yeah especially kind of like like you say like some of these have been grown for hundreds or maybe even in some cases thousands of years in broadly the same location so it's interesting to be able to to trace that back whether it's you know one family or you know many many uh different families coming and going and it's there's just such an interesting story to be told there even if we don't know all the details that you can kind of trace yeah. out through this ingredient oh, yeah, actually, because that was very funny. Because actually, sorry, in my family, the brewers back a couple of generations, mm -hmm. and then it was like I was like, "Ooh, can we find?" And I found some ads for them looking 
saying we've got quality varieties, you know, come buy mm. seed. And you're like, oh, there's there's archers. Like, oh, I'm growing sprout archer. And this is, okay, let's let's see what this is. It's mm-hmm. like, yeah, someone had some recipes somewhere. I'd be, I'd be all over that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All, all your local history libraries, you, you don't know what you might have there. So just, you know, make sure your finding aids are up to date. All, <laughs> all good stuff. Absolutely. Um, so we should start to wrap up in a minute, but but Christina, any questions for me? I, I know I can see you've got like ideas and I know you've got some side project stuff too that you've got notions about, but. Oh yeah, I just have thoughts. Like, just like in my own head, I'm just like taking it all in and just, and just, and just thinking. Um, yeah, just like thinking about like what I've come across like in my own research and and just kind of putting two and two together. And like, I came across a, a grain variety called Hastaville. Um, which is an early ripening grain um, in the account rolls of Christchurch um, when it was a priory in the 1300s. Um, so that was kind of really cool to come across. And then, of course, um, was able to pull like um, some some grain bills for a potential brew. Um, so, yeah. So, no, I was just thinking, like just thinking about, you know, um, using what's local and that concept. And I think that makes, that makes a lot of sense. And like, that's a, that's another question, you know, that I get a lot of, oh, what kind of herbs would they use? Well, what season, you know, right. when are they brewing where, and where when? are they brewing? And, you know, like th- this, this, this idea of seasonality is just really, really important. And I, and I just, I think that's just so great that that's what you're doing. I, I just really like that. Um, fascinating just really fascinating just taking it all in absorbing it all <laughs> oh like as in and those heritage grains like they do like I got I managed to find a few more basically at the weekend Ooh. I was like oh let's, let's grow these yeah uh, I, I I am trying to rationalize some of our growing because like the more <laughs> trial plots you get the more like craziness and there is a limit to my time I'm, right. I'm finding out and um, but like when you've like grains are so fascinating because you're like there's a new variety and you're like oh cool like, what, let's see what this is you know and it's like there's discussions around bear which is that it's an early variety grown in Scotland and it's like mm. Mm, is there, there's some I had this experience of a, a, there's a six row Irish variety mm-hmm. and it's there is a six row it means it's six rows of grains basically mm. as opposed to two rows and it it ripen a bit early and then I'm like oh that's similar characteristics to like you yeah. know and then you're like oh you're starting to connect these things together and what's cool is it, it kind of brings to life stuff in history do you know what I mean and it's like you know if you're trying to do a historical grain bill you know you got to think about the processes but you got to think about the raw ingredients and how that was distributed and all those other things and the more you do it kind of the more interesting those things kind of come out mm-hmm. um, and it's like so one, one of the things of heritage grains is that we used to cut them with a sickle and it's like they're not necessarily suited to a combine harvester you know mm. we used to cut them with a sickle store them use a straw for tatch you know trash them separately so you have to imagine all the different things and it's like to me the future will be a blend of that history and using some of the modern stuff that mm-hmm. we figured out about like so we use seaweed basically on on our molten right. barley too because it's biostimulant i use it as a seed dressing to get better germination all these cool biological things and i'm like but we can kind of tie all these different elements together and get to future but like yeah i do love when someone is like oh there's a, a weird grain variety i'm like oh interesting let's go read about this and see what 
So like I, I am trying to grow out all these other different things because it's like most of our beer is barley, right? But then we got wheat and oats and now I'm trying to grow out a population rye. And then it's okay. like, oh, what other grains can we get that would add interesting flavors or do interesting things in the system, do you know? Because mm, back then, yeah. like, there's all sorts of facet, like when you look at seed banks, there's all sorts of like weird grains and there's like re reference to them and you're like, what is it? You know, you probably have to grow it to see like, is this the red looking grain? Like, which is the early ripening ones? You know, because like what someone's view is on centuries ago was saying, this is early ripening. What right. does that mean? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Compared yeah. to modern, like what's going on. Um, but what's cool is that when you go back to those ones, like a lot of our barleys, okay, we've got modern uh, varieties of barley, but they're actually all very narrow in terms of what's mm. going on. Whereas once you step back to these like other varieties, then you're like, oh, this is completely different. Like this is way different genetics. And yeah. And oh, interesting gosh. flavors, inter you know, like it's all different. Yeah. So that's what I'm like. I, whenever someone comes up with a new one or not comes up with a new one, they exist already, but someone tells me about right. a new one and like, do you want to try this? And I'm like, I'm a sucker. I'm like, yep, I'll try that. Let's see if we can grow it and see what we can do with it and figure out what uh, what it could do or what it could, you know, get an understanding of it, you know? Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the other thing is actually of these heritage varieties is, and, and this is kind of one of the interesting things. It's like, if they live in a seed bank, like, then it's in a book it's in an archive it's like but right. if we can get some of these heritage and these populations out and growing now it's in living culture now it's mm -hmm. sustained and that's that's a way of actually preserving and having a window back into our, into previous life our ancestors and all of that and it's 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 easy sometimes like and we have an old cottage and it's easy to be nostalgic or be like oh ancient times were these wonderful times they had no stresses and no social media <laughs> and like it was just perfect and, like, yeah that's not quite true like life is right. tough and things you know so like you have to use a little bit of and that's some of these varieties you do grow them and then they're terrible and you're like okay yeah right, right. that's not yeah that's not awesome maybe that one can stay in the history books but uh that's <laughs> my my goal is to try and get some of these historical things or kind of find out as much about what a farmhouse culture and some of these old cultures and see what we can kind of bring back to life and bring into the vernacular and, and bring that back into society you know bring it back into mm -hmm. people being like oh you want to do something based on a farm go these guys have rekindled something go come visit and i'll show you how it's done and, and this is this is my take on what i think history was or what our culture was about you know and, yeah which is cool like and that's the other like we share farm with a neighbor and that's yeah the old irish word is metal and it's like it's people talk about metal and it's old it's like we can't do it in modern life and it's like no money exchange hands but we share you know we share the risks and we work for each other and that's you know and it's a nice sharing relationship and it makes farming more fun you know because we get jobs done together and it does have a practical like use like it, it is technically yeah. more efficient basically but at the same time it, it, there's a social side of it which is also equally as important you know mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Even even just the social side of you know deciding what you're going to grow. I know, like my in-laws get the American Seed Savers catalog, and they're going through it every year on a holiday. That's what they do in the winters: figure out what they're going to grow starting in whatever February. And I, I love some of the 
almost sort of overly romanticized names some of the varieties have for different things and then but they've done the same thing they'll plant some things and be like no and then others are like oh wow this is amazing and mm -hmm. you wouldn't know because no one's grown it for decades or or possibly even longer and that's just thinking about like your your sort of standard garden vegetables so it's yeah. uh, and, and what's cool about it there. it's like yeah. you can then a lot of those varieties you can keep the seeds and then you can share yeah. them with a neighbor and be like hey cool i got this really cool variety you should grow it it's really tasty or whatever and then yeah. that brings variety and we're not just growing all the same kind of onion or all the same kind of mm -hmm. tomato do you know what i mean it's yeah, like oh i got absolutely. a cool one. let's swap let's swap seeds and then you and that's what that's how you can create culture and that's how you create resilience and that's and it's fun and interesting you know yeah absolutely does this grow better up on this cliff versus down you know near the river all of those things even right. if it's the same area like it could be very different so yeah, yeah. because our soil is different like we know it in certain fields yeah the soil changes within that field and and that's you know there's just certain characteristics and i probably will get to the stage where we'll end up well, I probably will have more varieties than I need, basically. <laughs> um, but it's like, yeah, okay, these could probably do well in some other part of the country. And then, you know, at least if mine fail, there's, there's some somewhere else. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, as, as we begin to wrap up, are there any, uh, actually, before, well, first, where should people find your beer? But also, what's what's coming? What's your sort of, uh, in maybe in the secret lab, what, what should we keep an eye out for? So both of those things. <laughs> Yet to be decided. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we will be back in stock around Dublin, basically all good craft. All, well, not all good. Uh, whoever uh, responds to my email saying, like, hey, you haven't heard me in a while, but do you want some beer? And some of them say, yeah, cool. And I supply them beer. Uh, a few local places and then online you can reach yeah. us as well. Um, what's coming up? Uh, you know, basically we um we brew different beers. There's a lot of beers in barrels, so I'm going to be going through the process of evaluating what's ready, what's not, and what will what will be ready to go out into the world, spread its wings, and to be shared. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, there's always interesting yeah, there's always interesting things going. That whether they see the light of day, that's the, right. the big question, basically. Or do you want to keep them for yourselves too? I mean, you never know. It could be one of those things where like, this is so good, it's it's all for me. So I know uh had that happen on occasion, but uh only with very small batches. I mean, we're talking three, you know, three liters or sorry, three gallons, not three liters, but yeah, still. Once, once you're in a 240 liter, <laughs> yeah, it's a different story. Shouldn't be consuming all of that myself. <laughs> I wouldn't uh... <laughs> um, but yeah, no, we have a bunch of wild beers, a bunch of barrel aged things, and yeah, oh, there's a green malt beer actually, which someone was asking me about, mm. um, which that's a whole different kettle of fish, which actually I need to check up and see how it is. Ooh, basically, interesting. malted the grain, didn't yeah. kill in it to dry it out, and then basically mashed it and brewed a beer out of it. So it's got Ooh. all the flavors of malt, of cucumber, of greenness, this kind of green grass. And um, I'm still unsure if that makes it awesome. Like, technically, <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah. but I'm like in terms of flavors I'm like I'm still on the fence on it basically so I'll, I'll have to check up on it again and see if at some stage I'm either going to have to dump it or <laughs> or do something so uh, that stage is coming soon so either it'll, yeah. it'll be out and hopefully it'll be awesome and um, it may be interesting of that so that may be right. a beer actually that I might can some of it and only available if you're talking to me and I'll, I'll give it as a 
as a yeah. specialty. Yeah, I mean, I'd be here so much about you know sort of fresh hop beers, but that's a very different, like you say, different mm-hmm. kettle of fish entirely. But you know, you never know. Maybe that'll start a trend in the same way that you know sort of happened in the Pacific Northwest. It's with technically all of really hard stuff. actually. If we'll start trends, no. <laughs> no trends. No yeah, trends. yeah, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that. I could set trends, but this one, I, I can see this. <laughs> Although, interestingly, uh, Guinness brewed with green malt, like in the 50s or 60s, and they did, did like they? an academic paper on it. Yeah, huh. they, like, technically, this makes sense. Um, yeah. And with the energy, the idea is the energy saving. You right. don't spend all that energy drying the grain. So I was like, yeah. oh, that's kind of, let's give that a shot, basically. Um, yeah, so very relevant but, for our times, but uh, yeah. But like you'd have to change so much stuff, like your whole yeah, yeah. no, your whole malt house would or your whole brew house would have to adapt. Um, yeah. So maybe not. But yeah, <laughs> false economy possibly. But interesting yeah. experiment. I think enough of our listeners are nerdy enough that they might be interested in trying that either way. So you know, just to yeah. see, just to yeah. see. Ah, oh, perfect. Well, thank you so much. So with that, I think we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap up. So I will say thank you again to everyone who's liking, subscribing. Again, we're at Beer Ladies Pod on all of the socials and you can go to our link tree, find us there. But again, th- and uh, thank you to Christina as well for being my, my other co-host today and doing, like she said, a lot of nodding along, but it was very good nodding along. But mm. uh, with that, <laughs> again, we'll say thank you so much. Keep an eye out for all that new stuff coming from Canvas or for those little bits of good stuff coming from Canvas, yeah. it's out there. Um, but I, I think absolutely it's such an important message to sort of think about what are these these older things we can be using out, out in the world today? How do they potentially help the environment and uh, how are they maybe, um, you know, better on the sort of uh, both sort of economically and just sort of uh, for everyone else out there, think about seasonality. So with that, I'll say thank you very much and we'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowlin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowlin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.